You're listening to Changing Hearts, Changing Lives, a seminar given by Changing Lives Ministries. Paul Tripp is a counselor and faculty member with the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, as well as director of Changing Lives Ministries, a ministry of CCEF. Session 10. Remember the last session we talked about the call to be an ambassador. And remember, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's the model. And so we want to walk through these four loves, these four words that capture this life of uh, ministry. Remember, ministry is not meant to be an aspect of your life, but itself a lifestyle. Let me say that again. Ministry is not meant just to be an aspect of your life, like you step out of your life into ministry. Uh, God calls you to ministry as a lifestyle. Now, what's the message of this, this way of love? The message is right now, Christ is actively loving you. That's what you want to communicate to people, that there is a Lord, that he's present, that he's active, that he's a God of grand and glorious love. Here's what your job is. Your job is to make the invisible love of Christ visible. That's what an ambassador does. To make the invisible love of Christ visible, your job is to incarnate, put flesh and blood to the, lo the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says it's the love of God that constrains us. The most powerful force in the universe is Christ's love. And when I come with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm coming with something powerful that changes lives. Now, what does that love look like? Well, it, it first means this. It means I'm interested about entering a person's world. I want to I wanna get inside of the real world of this person. I want to help them to, to deal with what's going on there. And you have a you have a little bit of a, a metaphor there in the picture. That's a gate. Now, what is a gate? A gate helps me to enter from one thing into another. And when we talk about entry gates in ministry, we're talking about how to move from a casual relationship into a more ministry relationship. What are my doors of opportunity? What are my gates of opportunity. And I want to just give you an illustration that will help you. Imagine I get a call one morning from a lady in my church that I know well. She's been married 15 years. She has three children. She's not totally satisfied with her marriage, but she doesn't think it's that terrible either. When she awakens, she's startled because her husband's not there with her, and, and usually she gets up before he does. She rolls over to turn on the bedside light, and at the base of the lamp, there's an envelope with her name on it. She opens it up, and it's a note for her husband, from her husband. And he informs her that he's left her. 
that uh, he's taken most of his clothing, he's remo removed a significant portion of money from the bank account, and that if she wants to talk to him, she can call his lawyer. And he ends by saying that he's found somebody that really loves him. She calls you. Now, what's, what's your gate of entry at that moment? I want you to hear this definition, and then I'll explain. An entry gate is not the problem that the person is going through. You want to write that down. An entry gate is not the problem that the person is going through. But this person's experience of the problem. An entry gate to ministry is not the problem that the person is going through, but this person's experience of the problem. You ask the question, right now, in the midst of this situation, what has this person in its grip? Right now, what has this person in its grip? Think about it. If when you get that phone call from that lady, you pontificate about biblical views of marriage and divorce, do you think she's going to call you again? You can talk. Do you think she's going to call you again? No. Because that's not the powerful thing in her experience. And often that's what we do. Someone comes to us and we throw a Christian position or we throw theology at them. And we're, what we're doing is we're locating the problem, but we're missing the person who's in the middle of the problem. Listen, you do not counsel problems, you counsel people. You do not minister to problems, you minister to people. And so I'm always asking the question, in the midst of this terribly difficult situation, what is this person going through? You minister to that, and the person's going to want more. Now, think about it. What is this woman immediately filled with when she gets that note? I can say it to you in a word. Fear. What's going to happen to the children? What's going to happen to the house? What am I going to tell my family? What am I going to tell my friends? What are the people church going to feel? What does this woman have that I don't have? And the most fundamental fear is, how could God, who says he loves me and cares for me, allow this thing to happen to me? Now, I'm going to tell you something. You touch that fear, and you will have amazing opportunities to minister to that woman. And if you don't touch the fear, you're going to come across as cold, uncaring, and without understanding. You see, if you are listening to people talk who are going through difficulty, they will offer you gates of entry into ministry. Now, what do you do? Well, here's what you do. You listen first for emotive words. I'm scared to death. I'm so discouraged. I'm so angry. I feel so alone. Those emotive words are picturing the person's experience for you. Or you listen for interpretive words. This always happens to me. I knew he was going to do this. I'm so dumb I should have seen this happening. Those are interpretations that give you a sense of what is going on in this person's experience. Listen for self-talk. I'm such a failure. No one ever takes me seriously. 
How could I be so stupid? And listen for God talk. God doesn't love me. God doesn't hear my prayers. The heavens are like brass. Now here's the point. No one talks this way. They don't say, dear friend, I'm now in a problem, and let me share, share with you the range of my emotional experience at this moment. But people will tell you what they're going through if you are listening and looking for gates of opportunity. Listen, you don't minister to the problem. You minister to the emotion. You minister to the interpretations. You minister to the self-talk. You minister to the God talk. That's the war that's, being take, that's taking place for that person's heart. Because there's battles of fear and battles of anger and battles of discouragement and battles of hopelessness and battles of aloneness. That's the dynamic spiritual experience of that person in, the, in that moment. Listen, that's not just a woman who has lost her husband. That's a woman who's deeply and powerfully afraid. She's paralyzed by her fear and she needs somebody who will touch that fear. And listen, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were not meant to be alone in those experiences. Because our God is, a, is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. An ever-present help in trouble. And listen, God incarnates himself in the package of you. You fulfill that promise as God comes through you to people in trouble. Now, what's the goal of this kind of ministry? Well, the first goal is horizontal trust. What does that mean? You see, if you're going to help a person, if you're going to get to know more, they've got to trust you. You know that you don't talk about the sensitive things of your life to anybody. You don't sit there as your pumping gas and say to the guy who's across the island from you, hi, my name's Paul and my wife and I have a terrible relationship. <laughs> now what do you talk about? You talk about safe things, weather, politics, uh, sports. It's only when you know you can trust somebody that you begin to open up the deep, deepest issues of, of our hearts. Listen, brothers and sisters, there is a huge uh, ministry paralyzing silence in the body of Christ that needs to be broken. We need to be talking. And we need to build relationships of trust that encourage that talk. And when you touch the real issues of a person's life, when you touch their real experience, they begin to talk. Second thing is vertical hope. The person begins to realize that, that it's not only that you're with me and you understand me and you have you have touch the things that touch me, but I realize you're there because God is there, and the person begins to realize God understands the deepest issues of my experience. I think one of the places we want to go in these moments is to the Psalms. You know why the Psalms are in the Bible? To keep us honest. Because in the Psalms, the life of faith is messy. How long, O oh God, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemies say to me, where is your God? Pretty honest communication. Or Asaph looks around and the, the wrong guys are winning. You know what he says to the Lord? I love this. Surely for no reason have I kept myself pure. You know what he's saying? 
I've obeyed for this? <laughs> and so, so we, can, we can call people to name the silences, to begin to speak out in honesty because God cares and, and God's there and, and He's placed His people around me because He loves me. And this person who was doubting God begins to reach out to trust God. The third thing is commitment to the process. You see, what is really true with this dear lady is God is not just in the business of doing something in her marriage. God is using the marriage to get after her heart because God's not done with her yet. And so as, as I love her, as I touch the real struggle, as I help her to see God, what she, she begins to feel is, this person understands me, this person loves me, I want more of what I'm finding here. And it gives you an opportunity to get at deeper issues of the heart. How, how good are you at recognizing the entry gates in people's lives? Second thing, it means incarnating the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Colossians chapter 3 in your Bibles. Colossians 3. I'm going to begin reading with verse 15. Colossians 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts toward God. Now there's an amazing call to personal ministry says all of God's people should have God's Word dwelling in them richly. So they are ready to teach and admonish one another. But you really don't understand this passage if you start at verse 15. I've sort of tricked you here. Please forgive me. Uh, you have to start at verse 12. Now notice how the flavor of the passage changes as you begin at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Here's what Paul is saying. If you want to be involved in personal ministry, come dress for the job. Clothe yourself with these things. Now, what's the clothing? Look at the list there. What's the clothing? Where did Paul come up with these list of virtues? Did he just sort of pull them out of his, his uh, library and his virtue dictionary that he had there on the shelf? No, these, these character qualities are Christ. Literally what Paul is saying in this passage, when you begin to move toward a person in ministry, put on Christ. Brothers and sisters, hear this. This is powerfully important. People are not just changed by what you say. They are changed by who you are and what you do. We do not believe in just talk therapy. 
We believe in the mighty power of the living Christ being made known through people who image him in front of one another. And the drama of your love and the drama of your faithfulness and the drama of your humility and the drama of your kindness and the drama of your forgiveness will change the hearts of people. Like that guy said to me that, that day, it was my willingness to ask for his forgiveness. It was the act of driving back and finding him and tearfully asking for him to forgive me. That act God used to rescue this man. So if you want to love people, determine to incarnate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me give you another reason why that's important. Because as you are working with somebody who is struggling with sin, their sin and their struggle will become part of your experience. If you're, if you're working with an angry person, guess what will happen? Guess who will be the object of that anger at some point? You're working with a person who struggles with trust? Guess who they'll distrust? You're working with a depressed person? They're able to spit your most magnificent idea back in your face and tell you it won't, in fact, work. And it's there. It's there that I need to be reminded of my hope. My hope is that it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I, I live, I live by the knowledge of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, God Almighty, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, is living inside of me. I can love you. Praise God for that. And so the second thing I do is not only enter into this person's world, I seek to incarnate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask myself the question, what is that, what is, what of the love of Christ needs to be revealed? Maybe this is a person who suffered and they need compassion. Maybe it's a person who, who has, has faced a tremendous rejection and abuse and they need somebody who is remarkably loving and remarkably gentle. Maybe this is a person who has sinned greatly against me and what they need is forgiveness. What of Christ needs to be revealed at this moment? Listen, hear these words. You are Christ's, the look on Christ's face. You are the tone of his voice. You are the touch of his hand. You literally are called to make Christ visible. And as you do that, lives will change. under the display of his redemptive majesty. Third thing we want to do is identify with suffering. Turn there to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 and, and verse 10. Listen, the universal experience of every human being in a fallen world is suffering. The universal experience of every human being in a fallen world is suffering. We all have our package of suffering. We all go through things that we never, ever wanted to go through. We all face moments of unthinkable things. We all face disappointment and difficulty. 
We all face grief and trial and trouble. If you ever, ever want to offer a word that is timely, speak to suffering. Revelation 7 has a picture of the saints coming into heaven. You know how they're coming in? They're coming in weeping. And it's an amazing picture as they assemble themselves in front of the throne. This is so precious. God arises from the throne and it says that he will uh, wipe the tears from their eyes. The last act of redemption is the Lord of lords and King of kings rising from his throne and coursing through the crowd of his people and drying the last tear and saying, you don't need to cry anymore, it's over. You don't need to cry anymore, it's over. You needn't weep. I won. Know what that tells you? We're going to weep our way into heaven. Because until the journey is over, we'll still suffer. Now this is a wonderful passage on suffering. Let me read for you. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus identifies with my suffering. The word he uses is brother. Brother connotes what? You can talk. Brother connotes what? Family, but more than family. Father and son connotes family. Brother connotes peer. Jesus says, I'm just like you. Why? Jesus is a fellow sufferer who brings grace to fellow sufferers. Jesus is like us. And, and there's a wonderful uh, illustration here, analogy here in this, this passage. It's captured with this arrow. Christ was perfect in glory. But this passage says he was made perfect through suffering. How was Christ made perfect through suffering? I thought he was perfect already. Well, you need to put that, that Christ was made perfect through suffering in your theological pipe and smoke it. Or if that offends you, get out this theological gum and chew it. Uh, what does it mean that Christ was made perfect through suffering? Listen, what it means is the perfection that Christ had in eternity had not stood the test of suffering on a fallen, in a fallen world. And so Christ willingly subjects himself to what it's like to live in this broken, fallen world. Every piece of the suffering of Christ was for us. Isn't that wonderful? Every moment of pain, every tear of the flesh every disappointment of friends, every misuse of justice was for us. It was for us. It was for us. So that as we come to him, we come to one who understands our suffering. Wow. Now, that's how I come to a person as well. I don't come as a theological guru. I don't come as an answer man. I come as a fellow sufferer 
I come. I'm in the middle of the process too. It's suffering unto what? It's suffering unto holiness. In the same way, I'm declared righteous in Christ, but through the process of suffering, I'm finally made holy. Christ declared righteous in eternity under the process of suffering has demonstrated righteousness on earth. And so I always stand next to a person in ministry as a fellow sufferer in the middle of the process. I, like them, in suffering to holiness, I don't say I am what you need. I say I can take you to the Father. He is what you need. As we suffer together, listen, brothers and sisters, that means your life is not meant to be the painting that people look at. Watch this. Your life is meant to be a window to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That through your weakness, through your pain, through your difficulty, through your, your suffering, people who are in suffering and in pain and in difficulty see Christ and they get hope. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, if we suffer, it's for you. If we're comforted, it's for you. You see the point? Now hang on to your hats. God means for you to suffer. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's very clear. Because in your suffering, He uniquely qualifies you to reach people who are in their own moments of suffering. Listen. Listen to me. Your pain, your disappointment your brokenness, the things that happened to you that you never would have wanted to happen, the disasters and trials and troubles and suffering of life in a fallen world is a place where your false identity of self-sufficient and able gets broken down and your true identity of a child of Christ gets demonstrated. In your story, the glory of the Redeemer is seen. And so, I'm not just here to answer people who are in suffering. Sometimes I have no answer. I'm there to identify with the suffering. And as I do that, I become a window to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's no want of suffering around us. We need to bring that glorious message of the suffering Savior to people who are in the midst of their own difficulty. And then, finally, I want to accept this person with agenda. You see, I'm to offer the very grace of Christ that was offered to me, to this person. Hear this. God's grace is not an I'm okay, you're okay grace. Can I say this? God's grace is a grace unto change. God's grace always has change as its goal. It's full of mercy and it's full of forgiveness and it destroys condemnation and it removes guilt and shame. Praise God for that. But God's grace is active. The goal of God's grace is your personal holiness for His glory. 
And so I don't just come along a per with, next to a person and say, because God loves you, everything's okay. I say, God loves you. He cares for you. His grace is yours. Now let's roll up our sleeves and let's go where God is leading us. It's always grace unto change. And I believe the church of Jesus Christ has offered a wimpy, undirected grace. God says, I've raised up a people and I've made my grace known to them so they'll be zealous to do what is good, a people for my own possession. And so as we offer grace, we offer grace that has direction. We offer grace that has agenda. It's grace unto change. Listen, God accepts you not because you're okay. He accepts you because you're fundamentally unokay. And you need His grace. Because His grace will move you from where you are to what you ought to be. Isn't that wonderful? And we want to offer that grace to people. No, we don't condemn them. No, we don't judge them. No, we're not self-righteous. But we're calling them to change and we'll never compromise that call in all of our forgiveness and all of our patience. God help us to love people in this way. For information about this resource and others like it, call Resources for Changing Lives at 1-800-318-2186 or visit us on the web at www.ccef.org. A CDR Communications Production.